Greetings, greetings, and welcome to the show. This is Wrong Place, Right Crime. I am Frank Zafiro, your host, and this is a feature episode featuring Bruce Robert Coffin. Now, Bruce is a retired police officer out of Portland, Maine, and he writes a series featuring uh, Detective Sergeant John Byron, and he's a very cool guy, and I really enjoyed our conversation uh, quite a bit. I was fortunate enough to meet him once before our interview, uh, and you'll hear about that a little bit. And then we spent some time talking like a couple of old retired cops, so I don't know if you'll enjoy that or not, but we certainly did. Uh, and definitely we dive into his uh, his series, which uh, I'm reading the fourth book in that now, and it's very good. But before we talk to Bruce, we uh, are going to hear from Lance Wright of Down and Out Books, who's going to tell us a little bit about the December Fair from that publisher. Lance? Hi again, Frank, and it's great to be back on your show talking about the newest titles from Down and Out Books. We're closing out the year with a number of terrific books from established authors, starting with Final Cut by Colin Campbell. This is the first in a spinoff series featuring ex-vice cop Vince McNulty, who is a technical advisor for a production studio in Boston. A simple case of some missing film stock leads Vince into something much darker and far more dangerous. Next up is the second Sam Teagarden thriller from Gray Bass Knight, Madness of the Q, with the humble math professor plunged into a global crisis of religious bloodshed sparked by the discovery of the Q document, an ancient parchment uncovered in Northern Israel. Finally, we have a new anthology inspired by Mickey Finn. Yeah, that Mickey Finn. Michael Bracken has assembled a first-rate collection of 20 authors who have crafted a series of crime stories based on the famous cocktail. When you've finished reading every story, you'll know you've been slipped to Mickey. It's been a year for the ages, Frank, but all of us here at Down and Out Books are proud of the diverse titles we've published and are looking forward to continuing the same in 2021. And we want to thank you for your entertaining podcast, which has featured some of the top names in the business each talking about a topic near and dear to our hearts, crime fiction. Best wishes to you and your family and to all the brave survivors of the dread year 2020. Well, thank you, Lance. Some great titles there, and I hope that uh, one of them piques your interest and that you give it a try, or, or more than one. There's no limit. Uh, meanwhile, uh, as I mentioned before, I talked to Bruce Robert Coffin. We had a great conversation, and uh, rather than hear me talk about it, why don't we dive right into it and let you hear it for yourself? Here's Bruce Robert Coffin. Well, hey, Bruce, welcome to the show. Thank you, Frank. Uh, my, my pleasure to be here, actually. This is great. Well, we actually met once before at the now infamous Left Coast Crime San Diego. <laughs> <laughs> the abbreviated version, right? <laughs> yeah, the much curtailed uh, conference. I just spoke with TK Thorne last week, and you were uh, scheduled to be on the panel that I was going to moderate, I think, on the second day of the conference. Yes, that's correct. I was looking forward to that. Yeah, I mean, that's how we met. We got in contact because you were the panelist and I was moderating. And I was pretty excited because that's the first time uh, I would have moderated at a conference. Uh, so I was all jacked for that, man. I had a great uh, panel. You'd have been great, have been great at it. 
<laughs> well, I had great panelists. I was super excited to hear what everybody had to say. It was a very diverse group and from different backgrounds and everything. And so, uh, yeah. but we did get to hang out a little bit there that first night. And, uh, right. And you know, the always important bar meeting. <laughs> that's where all the important business takes place. That's right. <laughs> that's right. It's true. It's like the golf course in the business world. <laughs> well, I'll tell you, you know, uh, this is season four of the show here. I'm coming up on 100 episodes. And despite there being a lot of former cops who write crime fiction out there, uh, there's a good number of us. I haven't had a whole lot end up on the show just, you know, by just the way it's worked out. So it's always good mm. to have a, a retired law enforcement on the show, make, you know, a little fellowship there from fellow cops. Right. Right. And you all rank me. So I've, I've got to do whatever you say, evidently. Well, so. you worked for the FBI. So for a while, right? Well, yeah, so you get, you that's get, true. <laughs> you get some of that rank. <laughs> right. Uh, That'll so, get me a trip to the dump at home here on the weekend. <laughs> I get to take the trash. So that's right. Well, I mean, it's funny because in a way we couldn't be more different as cops in that, you know, I did my policing on the West Coast. Uh, you did yours on the extreme East Coast. You're uh, right. in Portland, Maine. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and in fact, I've only been to, I've only been to Spokane where you worked once uh, on an extradition back in the late eighties. And uh, I saw the polar bear. I don't know if it's still there in your airport. Uh, that's the one thing. I, and I had oh, yeah, bear yeah. for the first yeah. time. <laughs> the, the chief that we, we met with uh, had shot a bear and uh, we sampled some bear meat. It's it's funny because there are a lot of similarities in law enforcement as you go from East Coast to West Coast, North to South. I mean, there's some, you know, just some commonalities that never change. Uh, but there are some differences, too, uh, right. that, that you encounter. It was pretty cool to experience that as I, I taught for about four years after I retired and going to different law enforcement agencies to teach uh, the, the leadership program. And you see the similarities and the, and the differences. And if, and, and you probably experienced that too, if you're traveling around on extraditions and stuff, what were some of the things that you saw that were just the same, no matter where you went? Well, I mean, I think just, just the job in general, all the little things, the little nuances and quirky things we had to deal with every day. Um, I, you know, we all work in different places and the departments are all different sizes. Our jobs may be different, but you start recognizing that a lot of the procedural stuff we have to go through, a lot of the BS that happens, uh, you know, in law enforcement, that's specific to law enforcement. Um, I think the cops all experience the same kind of thing. Uh, it's funny you bring that up. One of the things that happens is uh, my, my books presently are only um, available by my publisher uh, in North America. That was just part of our deal. And so, uh, so holding out uh, for uh, separate deals uh, later on, which is a more lucrative way to go, according to my agent. But it's, it hasn't prevented people from purchasing the books and then having them shipped to different countries. And I find it uh, ironic that I, I occasionally get an email from another country like Australia. And um, they're championing what I'm writing, saying, oh, my God, it's, it's exactly the same here. You know, <laughs> the same experience. I'm laughing as I'm reading what you're writing. And uh, so I, I just think it's it's pretty much universal. I think that's one of the things that actually bonds us together as police officers, as our experiences are so similar. You know, and I don't know about you when I when I vacation now, back when I still could vacation. Um, you, you'll run into people, you know, even on the other side of a pool at, at mm -hmm. a timeshare. Mm -hmm. And you both know, looking at each other, the way you're the way you're acting, the way you're paying attention to what's going on, that you were both on the job. And inevitably, you know, if you're too over there, you'll find out that's the way it is. So, and then the I war stories that, uh, start. Humorous. 
Oh, immediately, especially if there's any alcohol involved, you know, <laughs> things you'd forgotten, long forgotten about start coming back. So I love that. Actually. Yeah, it's kind of nice. Yeah. It's like it, a reunion, right? It really is. It, it is. There is a certain, uh, definitely a, a brotherhood, sisterhood there that that's palpable. Um, what are some of the things that you have noticed that are different, though? Things that, uh, that you know, you went somewhere and you're like, wow, that is totally different than the way we do it uh, in, in Portland. You know, some of it's just procedural. Um, I notice, and, and of course, I get a refresher on this daily, um, either reading or, or uh, watching uh, procedural shows from overseas or that kind of thing. But um, the differences in how things are played out, you know, even right down to having your rights read to you, you know, the, the British or, or the UK version of, of Miranda is, is entirely different than, than what we have and mm-hmm. uh, very abbreviated. But, but I mean, basically the same, you know, the same points. Um, court procedure seems to be very different in a lot of places. Um, yeah, the role of the process, but you can see, yeah. And, well, yeah, and we and we don't wear wigs over here, which would be very cool right, <laughs> if, they, if they did that over here. Um, so, especially for me, if I ever got to do that, you know, being follically challenged, that would be great to have a cool old wig. But uh, yeah, just a lot of procedure stuff seems different. Um, you can see where they're all sort of based in similar uh, point of fact or mm-hmm. what it is that they're they're trying to accomplish, but. Um, some of them are uh, much more um, oriented toward toward old British law and that kind of thing, and uh, it's just it's just it's strange, you know. I mean, even even the drug laws are so different uh, depending on where you go. You know, things some things are, are very uh, progressive in in their uh, what they allow and what they don't allow, and uh, some places are still very very locked down. And um, yeah, it's just it's it's really kind of crazy. You almost it, it's it explains why going lateral beyond your own state such a major undertaking mm-hmm. because there's so many things you have to be up to speed on little subtleties in the law that will get you into trouble if you're, if you're following some other procedures. So, well, and yeah, and even here in the States, uh, you know, things as simple as uh, uh, rank structure um, I, right. I found right. to be so different. Like, uh, uh, you know, we didn't have a detective sergeant rank. You could be a sergeant assigned to a detectives unit, but you right. were a sergeant. And then in, in, in other agencies, uh, uh, larger ones on the West Coast and a lot of East Coast agencies, you hear that term detective sergeant. And why do I bring that up? Because Detective Sergeant Byron is uh, your protagonist in, in, in right. all four of your books. So maybe to get a, an idea what that entails, I'm guessing it, it's a little bit based on your own experiences. And maybe we could start there with, with your career and, and what you did while you were on the job, what you draw on as you write this series. Right. Well, uh, over half of my 28-year career, I, I spent in the rank of detective sergeant. And that was really by choice. Uh, for me, that was, that was the rank I wanted to attain uh, way back when there was a, a mentor to many young police officers named Mike Wallace on my department. And that's the rank he held. I mean, he, he ran the homicide uh, side of the house uh, up in CID. And So what um, is that rank exactly? What is, I mean, I so know the sergeant detective is. sergeant. Yep, detective yeah. sergeant. And so basically in our, in the Portland Police Department, the, the structure is that the detective sergeant supervises um, a certain number of detectives and or investigators. So in my case, I had the eight uh, violent crime investigators. So they, we, we did everything from, you know, uh, simple assault, uh, domestic violence assault, to sex, gross sexual assault, uh, robbery, homicide, uh, you name it all. Anything you could associate with a violent crime that wasn't a property crime. Um, that's what my detectives handled. Detectives are the line level. They're doing the heavy lifting. How much right. 
How much casework versus administrative work does a detective sergeant do in, in reality? Um, you know, in reality, my job was really to try and, and, and supervise them, to try and keep them focused. Um, you know, I would occasionally be involved in, in the cases um, with, with a hands-on perspective. But for the most part, I tried not to do that mm -hmm. because I hated it when I was a detective, you know, that <laughs> feeling of being a micromanaged, you know, uh, yeah, um, yeah. but really it's, it's, it's this equivalent, I think, in, in my department of having been a coach uh, for that, you really spend all your time trying to give the detectives what they need, trying to keep them motivated. Um, you trying to keep things out of their way that will prevent them from, from getting the job done. Get them uh, the resources many, they need. Many times that would be the Lieutenant uh, that you're trying <laughs> to keep out of their way. Uh, but yeah, no, and, and it was, you know, I, I obviously have taken the liberty of making my protagonist, John Byron, much more of a hands-on investigator. So he, in fact, is the lead detective, but instead of just being that in rank, he's actually uh, doing the job. So what I like about that, it is, it gives my character the autonomy of sort mm -hmm. of giving the orders uh, and doing the work so that I don't have to have as many characters that, that would make that confusing to, right. to the reader. So this, the detectives sort of take on a supplemental role uh, or a secondary detective on, uh, lead on a homicide role uh, versus uh, the ones that are actually carrying it out. So That's one of the things that always drove me crazy once I came on the job and understood how police departments work was – you know, you watch a movie and you have an LAPD lieutenant who's out there doing a detective's job and he's got a captain yelling at him. And it's like, well, right. no, that's not how that's not. And I, was like, right. I mean, in some agencies, ser sergeants, you know, do field work as well, but it, it's usually a mixed bag, some field work and, and a lot of supervision. It sounds like that was the case for for detective right. sergeants. Yeah, for most of the most of the actual field work that I did was either related directly to the counterterrorism work that I went and did for for four years with the FBI. And did you do that after you retired, or were you still on no. the job? No, they loaned. This was after nine eleven, um, oh. and uh, I got sworn in as a special deputy U.S. marshal. Um, they made me part of the Boston Division Joint Terrorism Task Force, and that's what I did for four years. Um, you know, a lot of a lot of travel. Uh, the last trip was to England, uh, which I had never been to. So that was kind of a cool, uh, week long experience. I didn't get much chance to actually, you know, <laughs> do the tourist thing. We're uh, going to see big Ben unless uh, some suspect right. ran <laughs> right. from you and headed that direction. But we did, uh, the, the embassy was great to us and we did, uh, actually get to do some cool things, including the tower of London tour and oh, wow. uh, get to hang out with the Yeoman warders and that kind of thing. So, uh, my, my nighttime was my trying to be a tourist because the days were full. So, but yeah. I really, yeah, I really enjoyed that time. And for me, that was, uh, that was great hands-on experience. And then, uh, in the normal role at the PD, um, anything I got involved in that would be totally hands-on where it would be my baby, uh, were things that nobody wanted to do. Um, <laughs> you know, they, they might result in the firing or the jailing of, mm -hmm. of, of fellow law enforcement officers because they were bad news. So, mm -hmm. Um, we did that, unfortunately, you know, it, it, it happens. So I guess it's good that somebody does it. It just never wanted it to be me, you know, and that's just how it worked out. So, yeah. Anytime I hear, uh, about that sort of thing, I'm always reminded of a scene from NYPD blue where Andy Sipowitz, uh, the Dennis Franz character complains about somebody, uh, putting a quote 
bag of crap on my desk. And it was, you know, a case like that, you know, that that was how he right. described it, you know? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Th- you know it when you see it, for sure. <laughs> you know, there's a natural uh, tension, uh, some of it brotherly, some of it maybe not as much between levels of law enforcement or, you know, I mean, you have your, your local uh, municipal and, 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 and county and then state and then feds. Mm-hmm. And I know in right. my, in my, in some of my books, I really, I really tank on the feds a bunch, you know I mean? <laughs> in fact, I've got a, a rookie in the first book who, who can't do the job and fails. And he comes back in the fourth book as an FBI agent. So, mm-hmm. uh, but my, in my real life experience, nine out of 10 times, uh, the federal agents I've worked with have been good people and it's been great, but there is that natural tension there. Did you experience, what was your experience like when you went from, you know, municipal police department to the federal Bureau of investigation? Yeah, you know, it was really totally different because I had, I think I had that similar feeling and experiences um, prior to working uh, for them that, that, that we all have, uh, really. And it, and it came down to territoriality. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you would work, if, if you had a high-profile case that the, in our, in our case, that the U.S. attorney uh, would take on, uh, there were certain thresholds that had to be met, you know, and it, let's say it was a uh, it was a fraud case or something along those lines. If you didn't, if you weren't scratching the surface of a hundred grand that had been taken, um, that wasn't something they cared about. I mean, there was no, there was no big thing for them. And so when you got a case like that, something that rose to the level of federal prosecution, basically we did all the work. Um, and, and I'm sure this is something you ran into. <laughs> and then the, the FBI agent that would get assigned or the secret service agents that would get assigned to prosecute it from a federal perspective and take it to the U S attorney would put a bow on it and change the name. And, you know, really that's kind of how it felt. And, uh, I don't think any, any police officer or any, anybody actually who works that hard on something wants to see it go to someplace else. And, the credit transferred along with it. Um, I will say that with the four years I spent with the feds, uh, it's funny looking back at your own agency from the other side of the road, um, mm-hmm. how similar you realize the jobs actually are. You know, there's the same amount of, amount of, actually probably a larger amount of bureaucracy in the federal side of the house than there was in my own department. Uh, and let's just say I, I gained a new appreciation for what the feds have to put up with. Um, and, and it, I liked, and I think it was very eye opening for me, illuminating to see, um, the jobs from each other's shoes. Um, I think it gave me a, a newfound respect for, for the job that I had and for the job that the, the feds had, uh, and have, uh, every day. So it, it definitely was refreshing to be able to see from somebody else's point of view. It's always a good lesson when you, when you walk in someone else's shoes and realize that mm-hmm. you're not that different after all. I, I just remember it always with, with the uh, with bank robberies. It always seemed like if if we caught the bank robber and the case was uh, all all pretty much tied up in a bow, as you said, they were more than willing to come in and you know be the FedEx officer and take it to the prosecutor. And yeah, we're, we're taking this one. This is this is ours. But if it was right. uh, if it was like <laughs> hey, no fingerprints, they wore masks, we got bad video, no car, no right. the witnesses are bad. Oh yeah, no, this is just not doesn't fall under federal jurisdiction. You guys can have this one so well you know it's funny because we we talked about that all the time i mean that was a running joke between agencies um and and like everything uh this is something i think people don't recognize either is that there are just periods of time when things are a big deal in the world or in you know a country mm-hmm. and as a result of that i mean give you an example like you know bank robberies were a huge deal uh mm-hmm. back in the 70s and 80s um a big deal it was a big focus and there was money to investigate and prosecute those cases 
when it came time for uh, terrorism to rear its head in our country, uh, suddenly you find that that all those monies were suddenly reallocated. Uh, there wasn't an, a limitless pot of money. And so the thing they wanted to chase down was terrorism. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, sometimes you couldn't get an FBI agent to come to a bank robbery. I mean, that was sort of the joke. Suddenly there was no money for that. So yeah. it really depends on what the big hot button topic is at the moment uh, and the allocation of money and resources for that stuff. Yeah, I thought they did a really good job of of exploring that in the in the wire. Uh, they, mm -hmm. they, they did a good job of of, of explaining that to the general public. Uh, yep. So we've been talking for a bit now about law enforcement. I could go on uh, with you for hours easily, and if we got some alcohol involved, even maybe day, right. maybe days. But I, <laughs> yes. I do I do yes. want to get more into your actual books because people are listening because they're interested in you, but they're interested in your books sure. as well. So let's talk about uh, Detective Sergeant Byron. We'll get back to our interview with Bruce in just a moment, but this is the time in the show that I like to turn things over to the experts. And by experts, I do mean people who know good books. The last several months, I've been hearing from guests who've been on the show, and we're going to stick to that theme. Uh, this month, we're going to hear from Drew Murray, Gray Bass Knight, and James Swallow. Hi, this is Drew Murray, the author of Broken Genius. I would recommend Dark Sacred Night by Michael Conley as an excellent detective Bosch and Ballard mystery. It's an excellent handoff between the old Bosch days and the new Ballard days. The pacing is tight, the procedure is as accurate as ever, and it's a really exciting page-turning read. Hi, this is Gray Bass Knight in New York City, the author of Madness of the Q. I've just finished reading Code 4 by Frank Zafiro. It's a fantastic police procedural suspense thriller and mystery. And if you like cop stories and if you like the real deal with real cops, then read Code 4 by Frank Zafiro. It's the best. Hi there, my name is James Swallow, and the book I'm reading right now is Matthew Hall's The Black Art of Killing. That's a really interesting action-packed story about a guy who's an ex-Special Forces operative who decides to leave the military and become, of all things, a military history lecturer. Um, when, was, when his best friend dies under mysterious circumstances, he's dragged back in to this action-packed adventure story, and I'm really enjoying it. All right, folks, there you are. Some great recommendations. Uh, try one, try all three. I'll tell you, though, and I've mentioned this before, if you get a book recommendation from an author, at the very least, it's going to be a good book uh, because uh, we know good books. Speaking of good books, uh, let's get back to Bruce Robert Coffin and his John Byron series. Let's talk about uh, Detective Sergeant Byron. He is a detective sergeant in Portland, Maine. He is. Uh, he is. You've written four books. Uh, the first right. one, Among the Shadows, right? Correct. Yep. That where, was the debut. Where was he at the beginning of that series, in that book? Well, tell, tell us where he is. Um, so I've, I've intentionally uh, built in a character arc to this series. Um, accidentally or planned, I don't know. It worked out well for me. It was a happy accident. Um, I, I think I was overly ambitious that somebody would actually want to publish this series. 
while I was still writing my drawer novel. And so as a result of that, I, I tried to incorporate things that I like. Uh, and for me, I, I love a, a storyline where the characters change constantly. They're, they're not static. Mm-hmm. Um, I wanted development. And so in, in creating John Byron, I wanted to try and paint as realistic a picture as I could. I thought if I'm going to write procedurals, the one thing that I want to bring to this uh, is my experience. You know, something that it makes sense that I've got almost three decades in this job. I should use what I know to try and create a, a, as realistic an impression for the reader as I can. And so John really is a, a composite of the men and women who, uh, and I say I say this frequently, the men and women who trained me, uh, the men and women who I worked alongside, and the men and women that I supervised during my career. And I wanted to try and create, you know, your typical, you know, two decade veteran who is um, very uh, dogged uh, about the pursuit of justice, um, who who lives by a code of ethics. And who, and sometimes that puts him at odds with his superiors, and who has who's carrying the baggage of 20 years of police work and the damage that that creates around with him. So I, I really wanted to kind of bring the reader in, and I think I did in the in the uh, one of the early scenes of that first book, showing you a damaged cop. Um, and I wanted over the course of the series that to change due to a number of things that that have taken place in his life. When when we first meet John. He's separated from his wife of 20 years. He is battling alcoholism, which, um, you know, is, I'm not telling you anything you don't know. One of the ways that we combat stress in this job over a long period of time is uh, substance abuse. I, I don't think that's a mystery to anybody. And that is, a, is, at least on its face, seems to be a good way to, to numb the, the demons and the, the dreams and the you know, all those kinds of things. And it's a good short term fix. That's all it is, right? That's all it is. And, and like you said, it's a great way to get together and tell war stories or to unload what you're currently carrying around on officers who understand. And uh, so that's a, that's a very uh, typical kind of a situation. And I wanted to show that, that somebody could still do that and be willing to try and change and to climb out of that, realizing that, you know, that self-destructive behavior ultimately will be the end of him. So, um, and, and a lot of us, um, I don't, I don't know why it is. I guess it's the same reason we got into the job the first place, the same reason we stayed beyond the, the whole five year. That used to be the joke for us. If you, if you were really going to be a cop, you know, you'd be there after five years. If you couldn't make it five, it was, you had no intention of ever being a police officer. And I think when our lives tend to fall apart and a lot of my coworker friends have had that happen. Um, the one thing that we seem to manage to cling on to to keep ourselves or try to right our ship is uh, the job. Whether you get accolades or not, there's something very satisfying about being seated in the front row for that for the greatest show on earth and being given the opportunity to try and affect positive change on people's lives, um, complete strangers sometimes. Um, and that to me, that's a good feeling that that makes up for the fact that it's not a high paying career. Uh, the fact that you get to go out and make a positive difference in the world every day. Yeah, and even though there are times where it feels like you're, you know, sweeping sand on the beach, um, you yep. still see the results. You, you mentioned uh, a trait for for John Byron as being uh, dogged, that that mm-hmm. you know, tenacity being a, a part of law enforcement. And I wonder if you agree with this that 
cops are not dumb. That's a, you know, I mean, there's all, I mean, there's all kinds, I guess there might be some dumb ones, but they're, but, but they're not geniuses either. I mean, they're the Sherlock Holmes. That's not the norm. It's usually, it's usually about tenacity. It's about, you know, cops are more Rocky Balboa than, than anything. Right. I mean, they just don't quit and that's how they finally get to the truth. Usually. I mean, do you think that's a fair statement? I do. I mean, obviously there's varying degrees of, of IQ that come to the job. But I think the one thing that we all become very well versed in is human nature. Mm-hmm. And you you go back to the well often enough and you'll find out that um, it's not just police officers that are the way you describe. It's also the criminals. Mm-hmm. Um, there are very few master criminals. Um, and so human nature ends up being the way you solve a lot of these crimes. You, you are able to, after seeing the same behavior over and over again, you know what drives people. You know that they are also basically lazy and will try to find shortcuts to get what they want, which is how most of these people get into trouble in the first place. Um, what it is that drives them, what they what they desire, what they'll hide, what they'll lie about, what you can use to get to them emotionally, if that's what it takes to try and get them to you know confess what they've done or to slip up. Um, sometimes it is a game. I mean, we've we've had uh, murder murderers that we uh, pursued and. I think they actually enjoyed the thrill of the of being the the pursuee, uh, and so you are doing a match of wits when that happens. But I think that's that's probably few and far between. Luckily for us, so we probably wouldn't have arrested as many people as we did. But um, yeah, I think there is just something to that. I think if you really want to be a police officer, uh, you'll study human nature. I mean, you'll really get a lot out of your day to day interaction with people, and you'll use all of those learned things and learned behaviors. Uh, to try and and solve a lot of these cases, um, you know, sometimes it's luck uh, that that will push you over the edge, but a lot of time it's just tenacity, like you said, and never giving up. Um, we, you know, that's the that's the nice thing about this stuff. I'm sure there's cases that bother you that that either never came to the you know to fruition or or didn't come to the conclusion you were looking for. Um, those still bother me, uh, and that's sense of I think injustice. That's just part of it. Yeah. Yeah, burns. that's really all you can do, you know, and, and uh, having somebody get away with it is that that's it's like a little needle, you know. Yeah, yeah. It's still it, a couple of them still can get me angry and that's maybe not mm-hmm. healthy, but, uh, uh, right. you know, I mean, it, yeah, you, you, one of the things I we talked about the commonalities of cops earlier and and um, I think one of those commonalities of of most cops is we just cannot stand laziness, like people who are on the job who are being lazy. And I'm reading your your most recent book uh, with Within Plain Sight right now, mm-hmm. and there's a character in there who is lazy, among other things. Yep. And uh, right. I won't give anything away, but he's he's definitely lazy. And the contempt and ire that that brings about from his fellow cops it just rang so true for me because that's how we all felt about the guy that you know found ways he worked harder not to work than some of us worked at working right 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 that was that was funny because that was a the one you're referring to as a detective but um there was a a phrase common on our department when it came to patrolmen and um you you had the the officers that would slough a report that's what we called it mm-hmm. you'd, you'd try to find a way out of not taking the report yeah. And, and it always occurred to me, you know, we would joke about this, the guys that weren't like that, 
you worked harder at getting out of yeah. talking the person out of making a report than it would yeah. have been to just take the report and move on. You spent an you hour know, talking a guy that. out of a 20 minute report. <laughs> right. Right. And they, and yeah. to them, it was an art form. Like, look how good I am at this. I'm mm-hmm. thinking, Jesus, go sell cars. If that's, you know, if that's how you feel, but definitely had contempt for those kind of people as well. And, and the other one that the other trait that met with universal contempt which is a kind of laziness, but it was also a little bit of cowardice. And what I mean by that is like we had areas in town, I'm sure you did too, that just were not hotbeds of criminal activity. They were, they were where working people and soccer moms and, and, and even criminals went where they didn't do their dirty because it was their backyard. And, you know, uh, there wasn't, you patrol those areas, but you don't focus on those areas because there's nothing happening there. And we get, right. we get guys that, you know, they'd be up running radar at 57th and Regal and we're stacking calls <laughs> down in the zone, you know, and it's like, come on. Right. And yep. couldn't stand those guys either. And if you're listening, you yep. know who you were. <laughs> and every department has them. Um, yeah. There's no question. And it's funny. I think cowardice is the right word in that regard. Uh, and I, and again, I say the same thing. I, I felt like if, if that's how you felt, I mean, it's not like, every police officer goes through their career and doesn't experience terror. I mean, we Mm -hmm. all, we all had calls where we thought, all right, this is it, you know, Mm -hmm. but the job was that somebody needed you. Somebody was relying on you. And so you, you swallowed that and you moved on. I mean, it it was what it was. And you, you know, there's only so much you can control, but I I never subscribed to avoiding it. And, um, and most of the people that I hung out with were the first ones that would charge through the door. Uh, And I, and I greatly respect that. I just think that's, you know, you, you have to go home and look in the mirror. And I never understood how people could do uh, or not do that uh, as part of the job. Yeah, I like to shave with my eyes open. Uh, right, right. Yeah. Safer, right? Yeah. Well, and yeah, I'd like to be able to look myself in the eye, like you said. Right. And, and obviously, right. you you imparted these ideals, these principles into uh, John Byron, because that's how he sees the world. It's very, it's very clear. Um, and so, uh, hearkening back to uh, uh, the first book, Among the Shadows, uh, what's the elevator pitch for that? What's going on in that book? I thought a great vehicle to try and introduce the readers to a new character was to give you um, his history. And so to do that, what I ended up, I threw him right into the maelstrom. What I had him do initially, the first the first murder that he investigates in that book ends up being a former police lieutenant um, who worked alongside of John's father because John's second generation uh, police officer, John's dad, Reese, was a cop uh, who's now deceased, was a cop on the PD beforehand. So John grew up with police officers hanging around the house on their days off all the time. That was sort of the thing. And so the lieutenant, the former lieutenant who uh, is murdered at the beginning of that book um, is somebody John knew from childhood. So it really stirs up uh, the case itself, but also also John's memories really get stirred up uh, and result in some personal conflict and some awakening uh, in, in that John will have to revisit and reevaluate things that he grew up thinking were one way and might not be that way at all. That's got to be a difficult thing to encounter because we base our lives sometimes on the, on those people that we admire and it can be, it can shake the foundations if you find out they're not who you thought they were. Yeah. And, and really, and he has a tragic thing happen um, actually involving uh, the death of his father. 
that really ends up shaping who he becomes because it happens during his uh, teenage years where you're, I think, most vulnerable in, in that you're trying to become the person you're going to be. Mm-hmm. And because of that, it, it shapes John. And one of the things I wanted to instill in that character that I thought was a great a great, another great vehicle was to try and add that realism of, and I don't, I don't know if I'm speaking for everybody here, but I, I think a lot of us have been through this where, you know, at some point in your lives, your parents are your heroes. You know, you look up to them, they, they can do no wrong and and you need them and they nurture you and, and whatever, you know, if you had that kind of an upbringing. And then like all of us, when you turn 17, 18, suddenly you're the brightest bulb on the planet. Um, <laughs> nobody can tell you anything and your parents are morons, right? It's amazing how quickly that happens. And then you get to your 30s and you realize they weren't quite as, as dumb as you thought, you know, that they were actually more intelligent than you thought. It was you that had changed. I think it was Mark Twain that said, when I was 14, my father was an idiot. By the time I turned 21, I was surprised at how much the old man had learned in just seven years. <laughs> <laughs> right. It's true. It's true. And so I think it's also human nature to, when you finally realize that your parents have flaws and that there are things about them you don't like, um, you we all say to ourselves, we're never going to, don't, Jesus, if you hear me saying that, just kick me in the head. You know, I, I this is horrible. You know, mom says this, dad says that. And we all say we're going to be different. And then invariably, you'll look back at some point in your life and you realize how similar you became to your parents because that was the influence. And so John grows up saying after his dad dies that I'm not going to I will never be an alcoholic. Uh, You know, I hate that about my dad. I'm never going to be a bad husband. I'm going to be a great husband and stay married and not get divorced like my dad did. I'm not going to be a police officer, Uh, you know, and so strike one, two, three. He becomes exactly what he said he was trying to avoid. Uh, and I think that's a sort of a human thing too that we that we do that and not realize it. So, what happens to John over the course of uh, now four books, and 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 you're working on a fifth one? Uh, how does he yeah. evolve, or do you want to leave that for the reader to discover? Maybe talk about it more generally. No, I, you know, without getting into too many specifics, John. Um, really, when he finally comes to grips with the fact that his marriage is over, um, and that. And he knows in his heart that he had more to do with that than anything. So he ends up um, having a new love interest, which is one of those uh, verboten love interests. That's a, a job with a fellow uh, detective uh, that he, in fact, supervises. Oh, double. Uh, which leads. Yeah. Which is all kinds of bad. But that really pulls him forward. They they both challenge each other. They both come from damaged backgrounds. They're both very good police officers and uh, great investigators. And so. I think it really kind of gives John a new lease. It provides new challenges for him that that he struggles with uh, because obviously he still hasn't learned the art of being the great husband that he hoped he would be, uh, or or the other half of a good good half of a relationship, as it were. Uh, but um, he, I think he gets a lot from that. I think Diane and John, uh, Diane Joyner is is his love interest. I think they play on off of each other well, and I think they both challenge each other, and so ultimately. John will come to that realization that he uh, can't deal with the alcoholism by himself, which is what he's trying to do. Another uh, problem with police officers is they're very bad at asking for help, um, which comes from having a job where everyone comes to you for help. Mm-hmm. But but really, he'll take steps toward trying to sort that out. And um, and I think it's just another one of those things that, that makes it easy for the reader to root for John. He's a He's a real person. He's a real flawed human being. But he always tries. He always tries to give 100%. And at, in his heart and at his core, he's a very decent person. 
And I haven't read the first three books. I, I started with the uh, with the fourth one, which, mm-hmm. uh, but I know about this relationship because you do a good job of uh, summarizing some of the past events in John's life without it being a, just a massive info dump where you say, oh, hold on a moment, reader. Uh, you can't go any further <laughs> until you read this resume of past events. Let me just list them for you in one block paragraph. You know, I mean, you don't do that at right. all. Uh, it's all very organic right. and it's it's just enough information to know, you know, I mean, I knew that they had a thing after his divorce. I knew that she worked for him at the time. And, right. and you know, I mean, you yeah. can fill in the rest of the gaps if you need to, but you, you know what you need to know. I try I try hard to do that. Uh, you know, you never know. I don't think you're successful until you hear somebody like yourself say that. Yeah. But I have a, a very bad habit myself of picking up book four in a series and not realizing there mm-hmm. is a series. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to write. I wanted to write this book for the people like me that, that uh, don't get it. <laughs> and so then, then everything they go back and read will be a, a prequel, but it won't be spoiled because I didn't put too much information. Right. In. That's the art of it, right? The art of it to make sure you provide right. enough context for today. But if you want to go back and read book one, you don't want to feel like it's not worth it because I already know everything that right. happened. So that's, that's a tough one. I, right. uh, I, I think the one that sticks with me the most is I picked up the third book in Steve Hamilton's, uh, uh, Alex McKnight series, The Hunting Wind, and and that mm-hmm. that begins with Cold Day in Paradise, which uh, won uh, I think it won a Seamus uh, or or one of the big awards at Edgar maybe even, right? And I was totally unaware that it was a third book in the series, and and much like you've done in Within Plain Sight, I I knew enough about the character to totally enjoy the story, and not too much to not want to go back and start with book one, so. Right. And it is hard for the writer. I mean, you know, you're, you're a series writer yourself. And um, that, that is the issue because the one thing you can't do, although I, you know, I don't remember what I had for breakfast yesterday, but I, I have a real hard time of letting go of what I know about the series. And so for me to write book four, but, but I already know all those things in my head sometimes become a problem um, because you're not, you're not sure that you're that you're putting in too much to the book and you don't want to spoil things for the reader. So it, there's sort of a, a balance you have right. to find, I think, to be able to do that. Or, or not enough, because that's, that's what I find. Um, sometimes you know everything in your head and, and it doesn't necessarily all come out on the page, but your brain's right. filling in the gaps. And so it, it's really, a, I think it's a pretty narrow margin, you know, how much is enough and how much is too much. And uh, my take on right. it is you hit it on the head with, with what I've been reading. I, I don't feel like I can't go back and enjoy the first book, but I definitely, I feel like I know who John is and that's, that's mm-hmm. uh, uh, well done. The other thing I, I, I do want to give you props for, because I think it's a pitfall that a lot of us uh, have to, you know, really be careful to avoid. Uh, you know, you're writing a procedural and what's a procedural, right? It's about the procedure. It's a, sometimes it's, right. a, sometimes it's a whodunit too like you don't know who the killer is or whatever but sometimes it's just about the process will the cops catch him how will they catch him right and it's easy to get bogged down in all the details and all of the minutiae which is fascinating stuff and people who read procedurals want to experience that but boy you could turn it into uh, i don't remember who wrote that big giant book on homicide that everybody has to read when you become a detective but you know which one i'm talking <laughs> right. about right the yeah, big, yeah. Thick one. Oh, yeah. You know, I mean, right. you don't want, you're not writing that, right? I mean, if people can go read that mm-hmm. if they just want to read a textbook. And I, I thought that in, in Within Plain Sight, you just really struck a beautiful balance of the story moves along, bang, 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 but the details are there, the process is there. You know, I keep wanting 
you know, as, as a reader for them to jump to the next scene, but I'm thrilled as a cop turned writer that you make them talk about, well, why don't you go to the station and write up a warrant for that? And I'll go take care of this and we'll meet back here in two hours. And like that, that is what it would really happen. And you presented it in a way that isn't boring, that is exciting, uh, but still has the details. So nicely done. Thank you. And that's the challenge. I mean, my, my agent told me that from the beginning is that you have to remember who your audience is. And I think you and I probably have the, have a greater challenge in that, you know, police officers are going to read these books because if no, for no other reason, other than because a cop wrote them mm-hmm. uh, and they'll be very critical. Uh, and then, you know, people that really have no experience in background and background in law enforcement will read them because they they love mysteries. Mm-hmm. So you have to try and please both. And I think that's a, that's a high uh, bar to reach sometimes. Yeah. It's another narrow band to try to land in. I just, my wife and I just watched a pretty good show on HBO, uh, recently called the the undoing had nicole kidman and uh hugh hugh uh grant oh i've seen the previews is that any good yeah it's actually really good i think they cheat a little bit uh, when i say cheat right. you know exactly what i mean um right. and i did get pretty mad at the screen a few times during some legal proceedings i'm like even i know that's bullshit she can't say right. that she can't bring that in. i was yelling and right. i'd pause it and i have to get you know christy's like can we just watch the show it's a good show but and it, and it was good but uh you know that happens i'm sure whenever you watch a police show you're like geez do not pull your gun out and rack the slide you're killing right. me here you know do you have a pet peeve that <laughs> you come across watching yeah when I'm, my wife is watching law and order uh she doesn't want me in the room because i'll do just that um you know the the police work they they tend to mess around with a little bit but i i always get outraged at the court sequences because uh, yeah. <laughs> like you know they always do the same thing the judge look like they're half asleep uh, someone will object to a to a uh, comment made during the trial, and rather than the judge actually ruling on that objection, suddenly everyone gives up and starts being an orator. And uh, I'm like, that would never happen. Yeah. You know, everybody's talking over each other, and I'm like, I can't stand that stuff. Or leading the witness. Oh yeah, that's the other thing I can't handle. You yeah. know, it's it's unbelievable how how many liberties they'll take with those things. Makes for great television but yeah. uh, it's, it's not the real not the real world <laughs> the one the one scene i i experienced in real life that i think would play well on the screen in in one of those shows was that i had a uh, one of the few prosecutors i met didn't like because i generally got along with prosecutors really well uh but he was just mm-hmm. just pompous pompous ass and he, we had a case where the witness that was going up on this on the stand I had arrested him. And then in the course of his confession to his crime, he told us all this other stuff about something else. And Mm -hmm. the prosecutor's like, look, you cannot say that you arrested him. You cannot, the the jury cannot know that it's been, you know, the defense attorney over here has got it struck. If you say that, it'll be a mistrial. I'm like, okay, I got it. I'm not my first rodeo. And he just repeated it like 20 times to me, you know, every time we talk about it, you cannot say that he was arrested. You have to just say when you came into contact with him, when you had the opportunity to interview him. And he's given me all these like thesaurus ways of, uh, of saying it. And I'm like, dude, I, okay. I've been a cop for 10 years. I get it. So you know, get up on the stand and swear you, swear me in, sit down. What is your drink? How long have you been a police officer? Did you go to the academy? All that, you know, foundational stuff that they do. Sure. And then, There's a pause, and now we're going to get into the real questions. And the first thing, I kid you not, that this guy says is, now, when you arrested the witness, 
<laughs> after all that. And I just sat there and stared at him. And then you I should have objected. I should have tried to I should, object to that. Objection, Your Honor. This asshole has been hounding me for two hours. <laughs> so, right. I want new counsel for I, prosecution. I, 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 uh, incompetence. I want to file for a mistrial. And it, it was, it, it was a mistrial. The, ju- the judge, I looked up at the judge, and the judge looked at me, and he looked over at the prosecutor, <laughs> and he excused the jury. Actually, she, it was, it was Patty. And she excused them all. And she said to the defense, I'm entertaining any emotions you might have. And they (laughs) moved for a mistrial. She granted it. And I just, I, I, gratefully that guy was very short lived in the, in the prosecutor. Man, you should have used that. That would have been, that would be great. Hey, it's it's in my back pocket. You know, I'm going (laughs) to pull it out sometime. That's that's comic relief right there. I love that. (laughs) But it's far from what usually happens. Now in this most recent book within plain sight, Mm-hmm. there's, uh, uh, and, and, I, and I only want to go a little ways into it because I don't want to give any spoilers. I hate spoilers. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the crime that that John and his team are investigating, the the corpse isn't complete. Right. Um, and I don't know if you want to say That's a good way of saying it. it. it, it there's missing parts. And this also might tie into a particular, uh, potentially to a serial killer that's at work in nearby uh, Boston, right? Right. Look at you. You're trying to talk around this. You're yeah, worried about a mistrial. Yeah. I, can tell I don't. Right I don't. I don't, <laughs> I don't want to be the asshole prosecutor here. So, no. 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 Um, yeah. No. John. One of the things I I kind of liked about this particular storyline was that I it gave me a chance to explore a little bit um, what happens when you uh, you pick up a case that has. Uh, striking similarities to something else that's happening nearby. Um, uh, one of the things that most cops have to battle when they're investigating this kind of stuff is that uh, that problem about, about jumping too quickly to, to a conclusion. Mm-hmm. Um, detectives obviously always want to try and and avoid that because that's those are pitfalls that lead you down a lot of times the wrong road, and you, you want to keep all your options open until you've disproved everything else. You know, kind of the the Sherlock Holmes mantra, mm-hmm. but it also is a is a real thing because you the people you work for you know the the chief and all the hierarchy at the the PD the city you're working for or the county or whatever it is that you happen to be dealing with they all want a bow on something they want to feel safe going out on the street they don't want to feel like there's a predator out there with their you know with their name in, in the back pocket uh, and so they're looking for instant results and a lot of times that's the that is the pressure to try and and move too fast or jump to a conclusion and so i thought in addition to making that a a a fun part of the mystery um it's one of the things that detectives have to battle with and so having cases that were very similar in in nature that were active uh nearby in in boston which is just a short way south of portland um, really added to the pressure uh for john and and the team to get this particular case right uh, were they are they dealing with you know a serial killer? Uh, are they looking at a copycat uh, or is this something else entirely? And I, I just think that makes it uh, a fun read, but it also gives a chance for the reader to experience what it's like to have to worry about that and not just focus on the case at hand. Yeah, because everybody doesn't necessarily have the same goal. I mean, you know you you if you're if you're a hockey team, like everybody wants to win the game, the coach, the GM, the players, the, 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 the fitness people, the guys with the take care of the equipment, all of them. Uh, but, right. uh, and so it's easy, right? Uh, or it's not easy, but everybody's pulling the rope in the same direction. 
sure. it's not necessarily always true within certainly city government and even within the department itself, uh, depending on the size of the agency and, you know, people in different roles want to you know have different concerns. And so I, I think it's cool that you're highlighting right. that. I'm certainly intrigued by how that will work. And you also dive into another outside element, and that is the the media, uh, which exerts right. a great deal of pressure and different kinds of pressure depending on the media and the type of person. Right. Yeah. Davis Billingsley um, has been with me from the start or been with John Byron from the start. Um, and it's funny because um, just a little anecdote here. My When I wrote the first book or actually the first two books, the first one was the drawer novel that, that I think we all have to write. And the second one ended up being Among the Shadows. Um, Davis Billingsley, for me, I, I wanted to be able to throw in you know, what it's like for the investigator to have to deal with uh, an ambitious news person. And Davis uh, is a young, um, uh, overly ambitious reporter for for the Portland newspaper, which I which I call in this series the Portland Herald. But in in reality, there is a newspaper that's the Portland Press Herald, and uh, so Davis sort of becomes the nemesis to Byron. And when I originally uh, invented his character, I I really had him play a very small part. I just wanted that to be a piece of what John had to deal with. And unfortunately for me, my editor loved that character. Um, and I suddenly felt like I'd fallen into that pitfall of giving my character a dog. Like it was something I couldn't possibly get rid of. And he always had to be in these books. Right. So thanks to my editor, Davis Billingsley sort of took on a life of his own and I made him a bigger character and he's had varying degrees of success with making John's life miserable. So in that regards, it's been funny, but, uh, it's, you know, I mean, you know, that that's just the nature of the beast and it's, it's really the same dynamic that exists. Uh, between, you know, you were a captain. So there's a big difference between what you had to do every day and what you were trying to accomplish as a captain uh, than, than there was when you were a patrolman sure. uh, or an investigator. And the same thing exists uh, not just within the hierarchy of the, of the police department, but it also exists when you are up against uh, reporters. Mm-hmm. They also have a job to do. And their job isn't to worry about whether or not, you know, information is going to mess up a case mm-hmm. Or whether or not it might corrupt a witness, that, that's not things they think about. They want uh, the public to get the information, and and if they're working for a company that's you know up against the ratings on some other company that they're they're fighting against, they want to get the story first. So you're really already at odds, and it, and it sort of becomes a give and take. If the relationship's going to work, it has to be a professional relationship where you can both sort of you know, do what you have to do so that, so both of you get the job done, but you're not stepping on each other's toes. And as you and I both know, it doesn't always work that way. And they're not bad people by any means. I mean, they get portrayed a lot of times as being, I mean, I know in my first book, especially I, I eviscerated the, you know, the media as jackals and, and, and I totally trashed, you know, anybody above the rank of Sergeant too, but I was a patrolman when I wrote that, you know, (laughs) You know, I introduced a, a kind of a bubble-headed uh, TV reporter, and she represents the negative of of the law of the that relationship that you're describing. But I also introduced a newspaper reporter, and she kind of represents more of the uh, the positive aspects of those relationships. Is kind of the they've been the vehicle for for exploring those. But you're you're so correct when you say that everybody has a job to do, and sometimes neither of us are concerned so much with whether the other person can get their job done or not. We're worried about our own. Right. And, you know, you do occasionally have adversarial relationships with the, with the press. That's just mm-hmm. how it works. Mm-hmm. Um, I worked with some great uh, press people over the years and I worked with some that I would just as soon not ever work with again. The irony in creating that character, and I was aware of this when I did this, 
is I wanted, I thought the hardest thing for John to deal with would be a young version of himself. And so John being the overly ambitious, dogged investigator suddenly has to deal with a reporter who, who feels exactly the same way. And John stops at nothing to get answers for his case and justice. And Davis Billingsley likewise will stop at nothing uh, to, to try and get the information, even if he has to go around, you know, Byron to do it. Yeah, that's that's a really good way to present that. I noticed that. I also noticed that he has the same opinion of certain cops as John does. Uh, right. So right. so there's a reflection of their their. Uh, yep. So um, I, I wanted to ask you about one other thing before we close up. But uh, before I do that, where where can people go if they want to learn more about uh, about your books and to get them? Uh, okay, well, there uh, the Detective Byron Mysteries are published by HarperCollins, and uh, there is an author page that HarperCollins maintains for my books. Uh, I also maintain a website, uh, BruceRobertCoffin.com. Uh, there's an Amazon page uh, where you can find out all kinds of stuff about me. Uh, the books um, are, are sold in a lot of stores. The physical copies of the books are sold in a lot of stores, and if your, your favorite bookseller doesn't carry them, they can order them. Uh, they're also available in digital format. Uh, hardcover, large print format. And the third book, which uh, still to this day remains one of my favorites, um, Beyond the Truth, is also available in audiobook from Hopper Audio. Oh, well, I might listen to it that way then. I love I love good audio. Joe, uh, Joe Wamba, um, uh, who, who I have had a back and forth with by uh, email, uh, and obviously was one of the, the people mm-hmm. I read early on in my life, um, and I, and sort of, I think, opened the door for you and I Absolutely. Uh, being a detective sergeant. Uh, and I don't think there were many cops writing uh, stuff back then that had any success. Uh, he, he actually got a chance to listen to the third book on audio. I was trying to send him a, a signed copy of a book. Uh, and he said, no, too late. Uh, he goes, my eyes are, are not good anymore at this age anyway. And I already bought your audio book, so I look forward to hearing <laughs> that. And, and uh, so when I got the email back saying that he loved the book, uh, oh, just, that's, I, I, that's that's the high point. Yeah, that's the high point of my yeah, that's like a yeah, that's that's like that's high praise. Yeah, and that's you know? incredible. That's that's Wayne Gretzky telling you you're a good hockey player. You know, <laughs> right, right. Um, yeah, I've, I've exchanged a few emails with, uh, Mr. Wamba and he's always very gracious. I asked him on the show and he, he, he's deferred saying when I get, have a new book coming out, that'd be the time. And, uh, right. but, uh, doors always open for you, sir. <laughs> if you're listening. Right. Oh, uh, amen. Um, I'll, I mean, I'll, I'll kick Bruce out right now and we'll do an interview. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I'll gladly step aside. Too. That's great. Um, well, uh, the other thing I was just going to mention is, uh, in addition to having been at LCC and supposed to have been on that uh, panel together, we do share another venue. Uh, both of us had stories in the Dark Yonder uh, anthology that uh, was put together when uh, Eric Pruitt opened up his uh, Yonder uh, bar cocktails, Southern cocktails and brew, I think is what it's called. Right, right. Exactly. How, yeah. how, That's a great anthology. How'd you get involved in that? Who, who, uh, what was your connection? You know, I, I'm trying to think it's funny because, um, I really stopped writing short stories as soon as the novel writing took off. And, um, and I think I was, you know, superstitiously afraid that if I started writing short stories again, I'd forget how to write a hundred thousand word novel. And, um, as this pandemic thing happened and everything really started to shut down, um, I, and, and I've really been under contract uh, for the last four years, you know, with a deadline of, of coming out with a novel a year, I sort of gave myself 
an unofficial, you know, year off. I, I haven't stopped writing, but um, I haven't been under the gun, uh, so so to speak. There's the working title for book five, by the way. Maybe that's what I was thinking about. But I, I so I gave myself time to do other things, and so I've I've written a lot of short stories uh, for different anthologies. I've, there's a couple more still coming out. Uh, one that uh, Josh Patcher uh, is editing, uh, the Jimmy Buffett anthology. I'm excited to see wow. that story come out. What song did you get? But I don't. Uh, I did Incognito. Mm. Uh, I'm sorry, Incommunicado, mm. and um, it, it has some great. Uh, it has some great stuff in it. John Wayne is mentioned and uh, Travis McGee, John D. McDonald's oh, wow. uh, stories are mentioned. And so I, I couldn't believe no one had taken that story. So I, everybody was, I had everybody was fighting that. over the big one there. probably. Right. Right. <laughs> but yeah, some of those, some of these have been by invitation and mm-hmm. uh, it's funny because as, as fun as they've been, I, I think that's even a little more stressful. It's, you know, it's got to be like Kenny Loggins getting a call saying, hey, can you write a song for this movie? Here's, here's what the movie's about. You know, it sort of feels like that. But yeah, it was fun. And, and Yonder was great. And uh, it was a great uh, fundraiser as well. And, yeah, the money, uh, the we money did one goes for COVID-19. Oh, which one did you do for COVID? Writers about COVID-19. Like, I can't remember Writers what it's Crushing now. COVID? The Lo- That's Lawrence the one, Writers one? Crushing Yeah, COVID. I'm in that one too. Yeah. I, yeah. Well, I, you and I got to stop following. Yeah, no kidding. No kidding. But I'm keeping good company, evidently. So, but yeah, no, they've been fun, and and some of these have been uh, fundraisers, and I I just think that's that's cool. You know, I I can't forever keep popping out short stories, but it's been fun to to do this while I've given myself this break. So, well, both of those I'm are trying hard to buckle down. <laughs> both of those are charity driven. Uh, right. Dark Yonder that that goes to a food bank, um, yep. and then Writers Crushing COVID uh, nineteen goes obviously to COVID nineteen relief. So, if you yep. want some cool yep. stories from some cool people. Pro- present company accepted uh, then uh, you can you can go in there and uh, see bruce and i hanging out and a bunch of other really really great stories yeah uh, so i i wanted to close by asking you you mentioned that you were working on book five are you uh, superstitious at all or can you talk about that a little bit to kind of maybe pique people's interest for for book five yeah no not at all um i, I am hard at work on book five uh to the excitement of, of many of the john byron fans out there um and they're not patient people i know because i get emails every day um but yeah the, the book is tentatively titled under the gun and uh we'll see where this goes but uh it's funny i actually took a little bit of time to start some standalones and i actually have five standalone novels going that have nothing to do with john byron and uh the problem is is as i'm writing them uh, on the other side of the room i can see the characters from the Byron mystery staring at me, wondering why I'm not writing about them. <laughs> so, uh, and, and that's almost literal. Like yeah. you just feel them looking over your shoulder going, you know, what are you doing? Yeah. Yeah. So I'm back on, I'm back on Byron and, um, we'll see what happens with this, but I'm, I'm excited about the current, uh, plot line where that's headed and, uh, the words of, of falling out again, which is really what we all hope for as writers. So, mm-hmm. uh, hopefully book five will measure up. I think, and you know this, I guarantee, from writing series and as many books as you've been part of. Uh, I think we're all our own worst enemy because I keep trying to set the bar higher. And I, I don't know how, how far you can go with that until you finally knock the pole off. Uh, but uh, I think that just makes it harder every time because you, you are not satisfied with repeating what you've done. Or at least I'm not. I want to try to give the, the readers a better book every time. And I just think that that definitely makes it harder. No one wants to mail it in. We all want to try to give the readers a good book. And I'm of the opinion that if I can't write a book that I'm happy with, the readers are not going to see that. So, Well, they know when you're mailing it in, too. People know. I mean, right. you, know, you have popular, yeah. very popular authors who, if they mail in two or right. three books, it doesn't matter how many millions they've sold, people start to sour on them. 
So, right. You know. right. You only get away with that so many times. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Well, hopefully like guys like you and me probably once, you know, but I mean, you, you know, right. if you're, right. if you're and Stephen King, you, you might obscurity. be, yeah. If you're Stephen King, right. you might get a couple of mulligans, but you know, I mean, that's about <laughs> it. Well, I got, yeah, I got, no, I got to tell you, Bruce, I, I've been looking forward to this interview for some time. It's, uh, I had a great time chatting with you at, uh, in San Diego. Likewise, likewise. And, uh, I want to tell you, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. I look forward to our next in-person uh, conference. That'll be great. May it be soon. All right, folks, there you go. Uh, that's uh, Bruce Robert Coffin, a uh, super cool guy, a really Felt a pretty strong kinship with him when I met him at uh, Left Coast Crime. It's one of those people that's just uh, very easy to approach, very, uh, very inclusive. People who maybe have negative thoughts about police officers w- would find him to be very, very much not what they would expect. Uh, so like I said, I'm reading within plain sight now. By the time this airs, I may have finished it, but I can tell you that it is uh, one of the better procedurals that I've read ever. Definitely pushing its way up into the uh, top of 2020 category for me. Uh, all right, a quick bit of uh, Frank Zafiro news for you. I have nothing new to report. I just want to remind you that Code 4 the fourth and final book in the Charlie 316 series that I write with Colin Conway is now available from Down and Out Books. And so if you're wondering how this series ties up, you can read that and and find out. Uh, and if you haven't read the series yet, hey, you can binge all four books, uh, which is also a fun way to do it. Uh, next episode, we are going to talk to Connie DeMarco, who writes in a, the Zodiac Mysteries uh, and a cozy series as well. And I had a great conversation with her about both of those series. Uh, so that's the next episode of wrong place, right crime. I want to thank Bruce for coming on the show. I uh, really enjoyed talking to you, Bruce down Out books for being a great sponsor. Uh, thanks to Drew Murray, gray bass night and James swallow for some great book recommendations. And lastly, of course, Thanks to you, the listener, for coming along, for listening during the month of December. I'm sure you have lots to do. Uh, Hopefully this has been uh, good company to you as you go about your holiday tasks. I appreciate you, and uh, please tell a friend. Uh, Introduce them to the podcast, The More the Merrier. If you found any of the books that were recommended uh, interesting or think they might make great gifts, uh, please support those authors. Uh, and if you are at all interested in procedurals, uh, Bruce's uh, books uh, starring uh, Detective Sergeant John Byron uh, are, are also would make great gifts. All right. Connie DeMarco on our next episode. Until then, this is Frank Zaffaro reminding you that sometimes you got to be in the wrong place to write crime. Mm-hmm.